welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Luke 2, starting in verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Let's pray as we prepare to worship the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would stand in wonder. Lord, as, as we get to stand here and, and sing Christmas carols, songs that are reminding us of the greatest miracle, God becoming man and living amongst us. And Lord, we desire peace. We want our life to be peaceful. We don't want to be fighting all the time and and filled with uncertainty and fear and anxiety. We don't want to be in a place where, where we're being distracted, and yet we live in a difficult time. And Lord, I pray that right now that you would give us peace. Lord, just as your angels sang that you brought peace for those whom you were pleased with. And Lord, we know that you're pleased with us. Lord, we stand here a people who have been forgiven of our sins because you took care of that. You sent your son and he died on the cross was resurrected, Lord. We have peace because you were pleased with us. And Lord, I just pray right now, Lord, if we are seeking peace in somewhere or something else, 
Lord, that you would just reveal that to us. Lord, that, that we would repent of it and that we would find the eternal peace that you have provided and that we are no longer at war with you. We are no longer in rebellion. But that this babe in a manger was a, a gift to come and live amongst us a life that was perfect so that we could know true peace. Lord, you are good to us. And, and Lord, I just pray that we would be refreshed, that we would go out this week, and that we would, we would sing your praises just as these shepherds did. Lord, fill us right now. We ask this in your name. Amen. As we're looking at this text tonight, guys, um, I know what you're thinking as David was reading uh, Luke 2. It's very familiar. I mean, it's Charlie Brown, Christmas special type familiar. And you could easily think there's nothing new to see here. It's all very normal. You know, you've got Augustus, you've got Census, Bethlehem, manger, shepherds, you know, nothing to see here. Move on, right? Not so fast. The more you look at the t this text, the more you're going to find that this text has a lot of surprises, we're just familiar with it because we read it millions of times, but there are a lot of surprises here. The first great surprise you find in this text is that it's surprisingly political. You may not have noticed that, but if you look at verse 1, it says, In the days of the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. And so immediately you have an emperor, right? You have a Caesar. Um, he's wanting to count all his subjects. He believes all his subjects are everyone in the world. Now, that would be just everyone in the Roman world. But still, this is a person that is counting up his subjects. He, he believes he's king of the world, right? It, later, you see his governors mentioned, the governor of Syria. You see King David mentioned, right, in verse 4, that Joseph was of the city of David, as he was from the house and lineage of David. There's a lot of political things in the first four verses here. Emperor, governor, king, right? And you might think to yourself, well, I thought the birth of Jesus was a religious event, not a political event. You know, I thought the birth of Jesus was a religious event, not a political event. But guys, for the Romans, politics was very religious, okay? It was during the reign of this Caesar Augustus that something called the imperial cult started. The idea that the emperor or the, the Caesar should be worshipped as God, Okay? They worshipped him as God. Remember when we were going through the book of Revelation, a lot of Christians were being persecuted and even killed because they refused to worship the emperor as God. This particular emperor, Caesar Augustus, he reigned from 63 BC to 14 AD. And Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he promoted the idea that his dad, Julius Caesar, was God, making him the son of God. Okay, sound familiar? I mean, this sounds like, you know, exactly like what we think of, of Jesus. It, this is a kind of uh, an anti-Jesus here. He promoted the idea that his father, Julius Caesar, was God, making himself the son of God. There was a coin circulating at the time, a few decades before Jesus was born, with the two-headed God called Janus. And one of the heads was Julius Caesar, and one of the heads was Augustus. And it said on the coin, the divine Caesar, meaning Julius Caesar, and the Son of God. So he's making a clear claim here for deity. There's an inscription at the time that said this, Divine Augustus Caesar, Son of God, ruler of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Very religious language for your leader, right? Can you imagine if that was what we said about our leaders, that they were the Son of God, the King, and the Savior of the world? So politics is very religious in this time. And Jesus is born right into that kind of a world 
and has the claim that he is the son of God, the true king of the world. And Luke is very intentionally here in the birth of Jesus by writing it this way. He's causing a collision between Augustus and Jesus. Who is the true son of God? Who is the true king of the world? Who will win out? Who's more powerful? And I think we already know the answer to this, but it's worth digging into. There's an old saying, your arms are too short to box with God. Okay, that'd be important for all of you guys to remember. Your arms are too short to box with God. And that's what Augustus is going to find here. Which king's going to win out? There's actually a hint of it in the story. So we got Augustus. He, he flexes his political power by decreeing a census. This census to the Israelites that lived in that area would have been extremely offensive. I mean, this is somebody that is a foreign invader, an oppressor, and he's making us, you know, he's wanting to count us up for the purpose of taxation. This is a foreign occupier bullying us, right? That's what it would look like. And it's unnecessarily burdensome. There is no need for people to go to their ancestral towns to be registered for a census. It's unnecessary. It wasn't normally done. This is a very burdensome thing that the emperor is doing to them, making this young couple, with, she's pregnant, go four to five day journey there and back. Especially, you know, when you have a baby in a very inconvenient place, there'd be a lot of reasons for this couple to be very bitter against Caesar, right? So did Caesar win in all this? Was, was Caesar winning in bullying around God's people? Was he winning by pushing around the family of the Messiah? Did he win by forcing Jesus to be born in a really terrible location? Mary and Joseph could have thought that. You might have thought that if you didn't know your Old Testament, right? But what does Micah say about where the Messiah would be born? Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who will rule in Israel, whose coming forth is from old and from ancient days. Who made Jesus be born there? Was it Caesar? It wasn't Caesar. It was God's decree. It wasn't Caesar's decree. Isn't that amazing? It's just amazing the way God worked this. He was born there not because of Caesar's decree, but because of God's decree. God's decree that he had made seven centuries earlier. And so Augustus, in his arrogance, he makes this burdensome decree, but it only ends up serving the sovereign purposes of God. Amen? It's amazing, isn't it? King Jesus was already reigning from the manger. Okay? He's already reigning from the manger. Your arms are too short to box with God. Even God's baby arms, okay, you can't box with. He's already reigning from the manger. A second surprise that we see in this text is how surprisingly humble Jesus' birth is. And we're used to this once again, but look at verse 7. And she gave birth to a firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We don't know what kind of inn this was. We, we tend to think it's a holiday inn. Okay, this may have been an inn that you paid people to stay at. This may have been a housing place that was distant, you know, distant relatives providing some, some housing. We don't know. Notice, too, that there's no mention of a stable and there's no mention of animals. Okay, there is a mention of a manger, which implies animals and maybe a stable. So we don't know what kind of an inn this was, but we can know two things for sure. There was no room for them to stay in. Okay, this is a couple that she either just gave birth or she's about to give birth. And there's no place for them to stay, okay? So they end up in a stable. They end up outside, perhaps. 
They end up in a cave, we don't know. But there was no place for them in to stay inside this kind of dwelling place. And we also know that they laid, laid Jesus in a manger. And those are shocking things, okay? It's super shocking, guys, that there's a baby that's born. And, and how in the world is there no room in the inn for a mother and her newborn child? How in the world is there no room, you know? How is it that no one could give up their space to have a decent, clean, comfortable place for them? That's shocking, right? It's infuriating. It's surprising. And the other thing, too, is like, how in the world could it be that a manger is a suitable place to lay a newborn baby? Okay, some of you that had kids, you didn't even want to use a used crib. You wanted a new crib for your new baby, right? This baby is like the most holy thing in, in your life, and they lay this baby in a manger. Don't you recoil a little bit about a, a child being laid in an animal feeding trough? It's shocking, right? It's shocking for any newborn baby. It's especially shocking when you consider who this baby is. Take a look at verse 11. When the angel announces Jesus' birth to the shepherds out in the field, you get a sense of how crazy it is. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. Okay, And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth lying in a manger. Those words are crazy to go together, okay? The Messiah has born, the Savior of the world, the King of the world, God incarnate, and when the way you're going to find him is he'll be the only baby in town in a feeding trough, okay? This is shocking, right? This is strange. That's why it was assigned to them, by the way, because it wasn't like you go through Bethlehem and go, okay, there's another one in a feeding trough, and there's a, who, which one is it? You know, like it would be very clear which one it was because it's so shocking. This incredible, humble way that the true son of God and king was born is shocking. It's really shocking. And look at who greeted him, shepherds. Now I know because you're used to this that, you know, when you think of shepherds, you think of like little kids in bathrobes at a school play, right? That's not what they were. Shepherds were not cute. Shepherds were shady, okay? Very shady in that culture. They pretty much, you know, always thought that shepherds were probably thieves, not real trustworthy. They didn't even accept their testimony in a court of law. These are those kind of people, right? So think of kind of how some people will think of homeless people or something like that. They wouldn't have thought of them as cute, like, come on in and see my baby, right? Um, so these shepherds show up. Why would this be the way that God sends his, his one and only son to be born into the world? Why is it that the rightful king of the world will be born in such a humble, shameful way? And the answer is, is that it was to show how he would ascend as king. Take a look at Philippians 2. It says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So this, this humble, shameful way he was born was to show how he would ascend as king, and he would ascend as king through death on a cross for you. That's what that verse shows. And I want to show you something really cool. It's, if you got your Bible, take it out. I want to show you a connection that Luke makes between Jesus' birth and his death. If you look at Luke 2.7, it says that they wrapped him in swallowing cloth and laid him in a manger. 
And if you turn over to Luke 23.53, so Luke 2.7, Luke 23.53. In Luke 23.53, it says, they wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. Okay, Luke does this intentionally, okay? In the beginning of the book, he says that they wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloth, laid him in a manger. At the end of the book, it says they wrapped him in linen shrouds and laid him in a tomb. These are bookends. These are to show that his birth is showing something about his death, that Jesus' humble, shameful birth shows how he descended his king through the cross. And we know tonight that he was raised, he ascended, and he's reigning as king. And so the third surprising thing is the surprising good news of great joy. Take a look at verse 9. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This reign of this new king that's born is good news of great joy. And the fact that this king is born is good news of great joy. That word for good news is the word evangelion, which means gospel. It's the word we translate gospel. It's the word evangelical comes from, a lot of other words like that. But this word means good news. And believe it or not, this is a word that was used about the birth of Augustus too. Okay, There was an ancient inscription that said this about Augustus. He said, as a savior, both to us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. Very political terminology right here. They would use this term of gospel or good news to describe the birth of an emperor because they put their trust in him. And they thought, okay, this one is going to make things right. But of course, they never did. The birth of Jesus is the true good news because unlike Augustus, Jesus' kingdom never ends. It never ends. Augustus was born. People trusted him. They thought he was going to do great things. He dies. His reign ends in 14 AD. Rome is gone. It was supposed to be eternal. Jesus' reign continues. Jesus' reign continues right now. Jesus' reign in the world is growing. Jesus is the descendant that David was promised, the king who would reign on earth forever. He's the one that was promised in Isaiah that the increase of his government and peace would know no end. Guys, Christmas was just the beginning of God's kingdom invading this world. He's invaded this world, and his kingdom is expanding. Every time one of you or other people out there come to trust in Jesus, his kingdom expands. As more people join his kingdom, his kingdom grows. It talks about in the, in the Gospels how it's, like, how it's like leaven, how it spreads throughout. His kingdom is expanding. It's growing if you have eyes to see. I think for some of you guys need to hear that because you think that somehow the kingdom of God shrank this year or was, you know, pushed back or was minimized or is suffering. It's not the case. He's not that kind of king. He's not a puny king that can be pushed back by anything. His kingdom is constantly growing if you have eyes to see. Every time a person receives Jesus as king, the kingdom grows. The day is coming when Jesus is going to reign as king bodily, visibly, on earth, make all things new, and fulfill all those promises to give universal peace. And you might say, well, like, why the delay? Let's do it now. Some of you guys are more eager this year than ever. You're like, let's pull the trigger on that thing. Let's do it now. Why is the delay? Well, guys, right now, Jesus is welcoming more and more people into his kingdom. Because it turns out, only if you receive his kingdom now, and receive him as king now, can you stay when his kingdom comes? 
When his kingdom comes, he's going to banish his enemies. What Jesus is doing right now is he is enrolling more and more people into his kingdom. So we can praise God for any delay. Because what God's doing is he's, he's allowing more and more to come into his kingdom. So whenever you're frustrated by, you know, you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which we know is going to actually be answered and actually happen here, and it seems delayed, you can just realize that God's doing that because he's, he's bringing in more and more people into his kingdom. But we might ask, well, how do you get into the kingdom? The birth of Christ is the true good news of great joy because Jesus' kingdom, unlike Augustus's kingdom, is a kingdom received by grace. You know, we see what kind of a king Augustus is, right, in this. He's doing a census. He's going to do taxation. He's insisting on payment. You want to stay? You pay, right? You want to be in this kingdom? It's going to cost you. Um, he's the kind of king that, that demands that he be paid and uh, that he be taken care of by his subjects. Guys, there's no payment that you can make to live in Jesus' kingdom, right? We all live right now in God's world. We all live in bodies he created for us, but none of us are living the way we should live. None of us are living the way we were designed to live, right? None of us are obeying and glorifying God as we ought to. Jesus put the, the law really simple. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when we don't do that, it's called sin. And there's no payment, guys, that we can make to make up for our sin. Jesus came to make that payment for you. He's a radically different kind of king. So you have Augustus, he insists that payment be made to him. And all puny gods do that, by the way. All puny gods are needy. <laughs> all puny gods need your tribute, right? Jesus doesn't need your tribute. God doesn't need anything of yours. He says in the Old Testament, cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. doesn't need anything from you, which is a little bit scary because if you wrong him, how do you make it up to him? A God that doesn't need anything from you. But God has paid the debt himself. Augustus, he insists payment be made to him Jesus insists that payment be made by him, right? Augustus insisted that payment be made to him. Jesus insists that payment be made by him. Jesus makes the payment. That's why this is good news for all people, right? It's a different kind of kingdom. You enter a different kind of way. It's a kingdom of grace. I just ask you tonight, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, have you received that grace? You guys might think it's like too good to be true, and it seems like it's too good to be true. But this is the testimony of Scripture, that it's grace, it's not your works. All other things that you would worship, whether they're other gods or idols in your life, they're going to make you pay, right? If you worship money, you're going to pay. If you worship your looks, you're going to pay, right? If you worship human approval, you're going to pay. If you worship any of the other gods that have been in the imagination of people, you're going to pay. Only the kingdom of Jesus is grace. And that's why it's good news of great joy. You might be in a place... You know, certainly you could be in a place where you're not feeling the joy very much, right? You're just not feeling the, the good news of great joy. One question we might ask from this text is, how could we enjoy more the grace of God this, this coming year? How, how could we experience more of this good news? I, I see three things in the text. They're going to be pretty fast. I see three things. There's, we, joy is found in seeing, joy is found in pondering, and joy is found in praising. Real quick. Joy is found in seeing. The shepherds, they heard about Jesus, and they went to go see. That's a very rational thing to do, right? When you're told news like that, maybe we should go check it out, right? If you want joy, you're going to have to go looking for it. And the only place you're going to find it is in Jesus. 
If you're not a Christian tonight, you at least owe it to yourself to see if it's true, right? Can you imagine if some of those shepherds, they were like, eh, it sounds kind of crazy. Let's go back to, you know, mining our sheep. It's like, you're not even going to check? I just want to ask you tonight, if you're not a Christian, have you actually made any effort to investigate the claims of Christianity? I'm not talking about just passively believing whatever doubts come into your mind or believing whatever cliches your college professor told you that are very easy to answer, by the way, okay? I'm talking about making an effort to investigate. That's what the shepherds did. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And then it says, they went with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Doesn't that sound entirely rational? Let's hurry and go check. Let's, let's find out if this is really true. I would just say to you, if you're not a believer tonight, at least check. That's one of the things with unbelief is it makes you kind of in a, in a kind of a dull haze. And you have no, you're not very proactive. You're not really wanting to think about deep things. I would say if you have some clarity tonight, investigate the claims of Jesus Christ right? Look especially into the historical reality of his resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead. There's a very solid historical case for that. You should know about it. If you go on our our bulletin, the digital bulletin that says it's it's covgracemenifee.org slash worship, I put at the very bottom some links. One's a message about the resurrection, proof of the resurrection. Another one's a book, but you should investigate. So go see. Next, ponder. You know, when you believe, at the moment you believe, you enter Jesus's kingdom, but how do you grow in the joy of that kingdom? Partly by pondering. Ponder Jesus in his kingdom. Like Mary, look at verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary's a great example of where to find joy. She treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. One thing 2020 has reinforced to me is my belief that people are what they ponder. People are what they ponder. Haven't you found that to be true? I found it to be true for myself. I'm not saying that I was great at pondering this year. But we are what we ponder, right? It's the most common cause of our misery or joy. We actually have a fair degree of ability to seek joy. And one of the ways we seek it is by what we ponder. It says here in the passage that Mary treasured it up in her heart. Jesus said it's out of the treasure of the heart that man speaks. And, and what we are inside is, is largely a degree of what we ponder, what we treasure up in our hearts. You might be living in a prison of your own making, and each one of the bars of that prison are the thoughts you've left unchecked. Okay? You might be living in a prison of your own making. Some of you certainly are. And the bars are made of thoughts you've left unchecked. Ponder Christ in his kingdom. Tim Keller said this, in the end, it's joy and wonder in the gospel that will change you permanently. Only that experience sufficiently reprograms the heart. It's like in a gas engine, you know, that sparked gasoline, right? Um, It's like that sparked gasoline is really similar to those tiny little explosions of joy that you get when you ponder Jesus and his kingdom. You get these little explosions of joy like a gasoline engine, and that propels you forward. That's how we're transformed, guys. And that's not passive. That's active. We need to ponder these things. And then thirdly, the exhaust that comes out of that engine is praise. They're good emissions, emissions of praise. Take a look at verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. And then dropping down to verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen 
what had been told to them. The shepherds, they praise. They praise in two ways, really. They praise in the kind of the way we just did when we sang. We kind of praised the Lord. We sang to him. But they also praised in evangelism. They praised God by, by speaking to other people about the good things that God had done right? Those are both forms of praise. There's praise directly to God, and there's praise in, in the way you might praise your kid in front of somebody else, right? That you would praise Jesus in front of others. These, and it's funny because, you know, here are these people that aren't even allowed to be witnesses in a court of law, and God chooses them to be the first witnesses of the Savior's birth. Isn't that amazing? Picks these people. And the people, you know, they seem confused after they hear the shepherds, actually. Verse 18, and all who heard wondered at what the shepherds told them. They may not have been great at saying it, but at least they're saying, they're speaking their joy to others. They're, they're sharing their joy. Evangelism, guys, is praise. It's us praising God before other people. And we're going to praise whatever we're excited about. We're going to praise whatever makes us happy. We do this already, you know. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the world rings with praise. Lovers praise their loves. Readers praise their favorite poets. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite game. There's praise of weather and wines and dishes and actors and motors and horses and colleges and countries and historic personages and children and flowers and mountains and rare stamps and rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Then he goes on to say, I have noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Right? So we praise because we love him and we have joy in him and it's natural to. It's just like you might talk to somebody about your car or some show you saw or whatever, but it's way higher degree. We praise Jesus because he makes us so happy. And we praise Jesus too, guys, because praising actually completes our joy. You guys realize that? Lewis goes on to talk about that. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. And he goes on to talk about like, how hard is it when you see an amazing sunset or you, you read some amazing book or you hear a really good joke and there's no one to tell about it, right? That the telling of it completes the joy. And, and so when we share Christ with other people, that's actually to complete our joy, right? We enjoy praising him. We praise him because he makes us so happy. We praise him because it makes us even happier to talk about him. So seeing, pondering, and praising. In the Lord's Supper, we do all three. We see, we ponder, and we praise in the Lord's Supper. We see. As we take the Lord's Supper, we see with the eyes of faith Jesus Christ laying down his body and his blood for us. And we see that in the bread and the cup. The bread reminds us of his broken body, and the cup reminds us of his shed blood. And so we, we see. We, we ponder, right? We ponder. We, we remember that Christ died for me. You know, Paul was able to say that in Galatians. He said, Christ died for me. Can you say that tonight? You can honestly say, not just Christ died for sinners, not just, you know, Christ died for other people, or, you know, maybe Christ died for me. Can you say tonight, Christ died for me? Why don't you actually say that? You don't have to say it super loud, but just say audibly to yourself right now. Christ died for me. You believe that? Christ died for me. And so we see what he did. We ponder it in our hearts. 
and then we praise him. Paul said that every time we do this, we're actually making a public statement. We're making a public statement that he did indeed die. He was raised, and he's going to indeed return to make all things new. The, the very act of us doing this in a public place like this, you know, with people that are driving by, this is more public than normal, we're actually making a statement. We're commending Jesus. We're praising him before others. And so if that's your hope, if that's what you're trusting in, please take the bread with me. Hear now the voice of your Savior, the true Son of God, the one who deserves all worship, but was humbled, being found in the form of a human, and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hear him say this to you. This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Jesus, we do believe that. We believe that your precious body, your real precious body, your body, just like we have a body, was truly nailed to a cross, truly died in our place. That you laid down your life like that for us. And we thank you. Let's take the cup. Hear the words of Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron who also bled and died for you, hear him say this to you. This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Jesus, only your blood could make us the kind of people that you're well pleased with. Only your blood can make us the kind of people who can enter your kingdom even now to enjoy your presence, to enjoy forgiveness, to enjoy your Holy Spirit living within us, to enjoy your coming and return and the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for that. Father, we are a grateful people. We're grateful for our King, King Jesus that you sent us, the best of all kings by far. There's nothing in him that could be improved upon. There's nothing in him that's lacking. Everything we see about him is way more than we had expected. There's always some new layer, some new angle of his glory. We thank you that Jesus didn't insist on us making a payment, but he insisted on making the payment for us. Father, we're grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Wonderful news in a time such as this that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Your king and your kingdom are unstoppable. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see, even now, the advance of your reign. We pray, Lord, as we worship you, that we do it with happy hearts, full of joy, delighting in expressing that enjoyment of your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.